Thanks, Jeremy. First things first, I'm Mark Huffman, uh, expectation management. <clears throat> this is very important because I'm an anesthesiologist, as he said, which means that at work on a daily basis, I talk to a single person for as short a time as possible before I put them to sleep on purpose. <laughs> and so now I'm up here expected to talk to a whole bunch of people for a long time in a way that keeps them engaged and awake, and I'm just not used to doing that. So that is my problem. Your problem is that you're used to hearing Wayne Broderick, which means that every Sunday you set your bar way up there. <laughs> so I, if you don't mind for this morning only, would like you to go ahead and <laughs> set it down there. So that's done. So let's talk about what I'm here to talk about, which is the antediluvian world. The earth as it was before the flood of Noah. Now, scriptural details of this wiped out world are found in Genesis 2 through 6, and although these chapters encompass 1,600 years of biblical history, these details are pretty sparse. There are four named rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates, Gihon, and Pishon. A few place names, Eden, Assyria, Cush, Havilah, the city of Enoch, and the land of Nod, and two genealogical lines, Seth to Noah, and Cain to Tubal-Cain, Nama, Jubal, and Jabal. So that's it. All right, that doesn't kind of seem like that much, and it's really not, so you ask, why even bother talking about it? Because this seems like biblical trivia, right? That it isn't worth studying, has no possible application for my daily Christian walk. Well, let me give you some reasons why that may not be the case. 2 Timothy 3.16 3, says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Well, Genesis 2 through 6 has been scripture ever since there was such a thing as scripture, right? So let's see how this might equip us. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So also see 2 Peter 3, 3 through 8. And the point is, since Jesus' second coming is directly compared by Jesus himself to the days before the flood, and since we Christians are not of the night that the day should overtake us as a thief, then it's probably a good idea to be at least conversant in what the days of Noah might have been like, which is what Genesis 2 through 6 tells us. Last one, John 5, 46 and 47, I'll be coming back to this later. It's Jesus talking, and he says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, then how will you believe my words? So obviously we know beliefs about Genesis don't save anybody. But in these verses, Jesus directly links the credibility of Moses' writings, including Genesis, with his own. So I think this is extremely important, and we will come back to it later, like I said. But now, though, let's travel back to the world before the flood, figuratively. So this is Rodinia. This is the Rodinian supercontinent. Geologists of every axiom, which is a fancy word that refers to the foundational presupposition through which one filters data, whether that axiom is materialistic uniformitarianism that assumes a four billion year earth history, or whether it's biblical infallibility defined by historical, grammatical, exegetical, hermeneutic, that concludes an earth age of 6,000 years, pretty much everybody agrees about Rodinia. So when God created the earth, it very likely looks something like that. And of course, he didn't just leave it oceans and land, he filled it with fauna. Not, sorry, that's a fawn. Fauna, which means animals. 
So we know some stuff about animals. You can't talk about Noah without talking about animals, right? So from a plain reading of the text of Genesis, the following facts are either directly stated or inferred. They were known and named by Adam. At least every kind of animal was known and named by Adam. In Hebrew, that's baramin, and at least those animals that were nefesh chaya, meaning they were uh, living creatures with the breath of life. So this kind of animal more or less encompasses all vertebrates, pretty much excludes invertebrates. Uh, and it's important to understand both from a scriptural and scientific standpoint that a biblical kind does not mean a breed or species. Okay, Adam didn't go, you're a Dalmatian and you're a Dachshund and you're a Great Dane, right? Um, trivia question. Does anybody know what the ancestor of every domestic breed of dog is? Yes, gray wolf. Who said gray wolf? You win. Nice job, nice job. Gray wolf, every single breed of dog, no matter how different they look, is all, they are all descended from the gray wolf. So Adam would have not named the breeds of dog, he would have named the dog kind or the wolf kind, right? So in Genesis 9-2, God puts the fear of man into the animal kingdom. Now this implies that before the flood, animals did not fear man at all. So this could have been very useful and cool. Taming animals, whether for husbandry or beasts or burdens or mounts, surely would have been much easier, which means maybe you could have ridden that thing, which would have been so cool. On the other hand, um, it might have meant that the truly terrifying creatures, most of which are extinct today, would have constantly been all up in people's flocks and towns and other business, which is not nearly as cool. If Noah took each animal kind, or seven in some cases, and probably seven pairs, actually, again, these are nefesh haya animals, onto the ark, it's necessarily true that the natural world experienced Noah baramine level extinction before the flood. Uh, this means that mankind, at some point in its history, must have lived concurrently with the Paraceratherium and the Trilocotherium and the Rousekian and the Lasmotherium and the Synthetoceros and the Megaloceros. The Megaloceros, a.k.a. Irish elk. Have you all seen The Hobbit? Branduil rides that? That was a thing, like for real, which is super cool. Um, Hyenodont and the Styracosaurus. Um, dinosaurs live with man, inconceivable. Inconceivable, okay. Well, let's talk about that because everybody likes talking about dinosaurs anyway, so I'm going to. Behemoth in Job 40. we see characteristics listed in Job 40 about an animal called behemoth, where God describes what he himself identifies as one of his most awe-inspiring creatures. If your Bible has footnotes on this subject, and it very well may, they may helpfully inform you that this creature is an elephant or a hippopotamus. It turns out that footnotes to the Bible aren't actually God-inspired. So I'm gonna challenge that. So those are big animals, yeah, and hippos are actually extremely dangerous if you did not know, super dangerous kill tons of people. But let's see if they fit the text, right? Behemoth has these descriptors in Job. Eats grass like an ox, bones like bronze, limbs like iron. So, so far, so good for elephant and hippo, right? Um, lives in the marshes. Maybe not elephant, but yeah, sure, hippo, yeah. Tail like a limp deflated balloon. So that's not what it says, right? And those, what does it say? Cedar, close enough. It's, you win, and you still get credit for it. Um, one to one. Uh, that is not a cedar-like tail. It's just not. Um, but there is an animal that fits that description exactly and fits the other ones better, 
and it is the star of maybe my favorite single scene in the history of film. The Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is about this thing. So yeah, I'm saying that the behemoth of Job is best identified as a dinosaur, specifically a sauropod, like a brachiosaurus or diplodocus. So now I get to talk about dinosaurs. So Sir Richard Owen coined the name dinosaur, meaning terrible lizard, in the 1840s, which means before the 1840s the word dinosaur did not exist. But if, in fact, such creatures were known to humans, we could probably infer some things about them. They would probably be present in the historical record probably throughout the world. They'd be probably described as some sort of huge, terrible lizard, but by a name other than dinosaur, which again, wasn't a word yet. So is there, an an, is there a name that matches that? Yeah, dragon, right? So dragons have been extensively mythologized, obviously. But they are also well-documented by serious historical records, by everyone from ancient Greeks to medieval Europeans to Marco Polo in China, where even today the Chinese Zodiac features a yearly rotating list of animals like the rat, the dog, the monkey, and the dragon. Uh, from a scientific standpoint, some recent empirical scientific data, like soft tissue and fossilized dinosaur long bones and unpermineralized dinosaur bones, are pretty strong evidence, actually, for the presence of these animals in recent history. And honestly, by their very existence, ought to have destroyed the idea of a millions-year-old extinction of dinosaurs the moment they were discovered, if that sort of belief remained purely scientific, which it's not at this point. But I can't talk about Behemoth without talking about Leviathan, which is what my book's named. Now, described by God in Job 41, you can see some of the primary characteristics of this creature here. Uh, will traders bargain over him, God asked. Tear around his teeth, outer armor, double males, strong scales, flashes forth light, sparks of fire, burning torches. What's that about? Sparks of fire, that's crazy. Okay, so again, many of you might have footnotes in your Bibles helpfully informing you that a Leviathan is, or a crocodile. Which is, in fact, one of the most terrifying animals alive today. And I never actually want to see one in the wild because it will kill you whether you're on land or on sea. But does it fit the characteristics? Well, can traders bargain over him? Yes. Some of you guys might be wearing him today. <laughs> People play with him and bind him. Steve Irwin is probably the best known naturalist in the last 20 years, and he was known as the crocodile hunter. All of you get credit for that one. Right? So, also no fire whatsoever, zero fire. So what might it have been then? Well, among people who discuss such things as what was the Leviathan really, one of the primary contenders is the Spinosaurus. I would have used a clip from Jurassic Park 3, but all of them have the Spinosaurus eating people, so I... 
Spinosaurus is a predator, but one that hunts in water. Those fish are man-sized. Yeah, so that's not okay. Give her a hand when she comes out. And that was a mosasaur. Some people talk about that too. My personal favorite is the Sarcosuchus, which is basically a school bus sized crocodilian with a massive protrusion called a bora. Right there at the end of its jaw. Yeah, so also not okay at all. Um, so interestingly, that, that protrusion, that bulb thing at the front of its, uh, front of its jaw, uh, it hasn't had an identified function yet. So well, maybe it shoots fire. No one has any better ideas. So that's one of the reasons it's my favorite one. Also, it's terrible and awful, and I'm so glad it's extinct. So speaking of... So let's keep talking about animals. Pre-fall bunny. Just as the nature and rules of the interaction between God and man has changed at several points in history, the relationship uh, between animals and man and animals and each other has changed several times too. For example, we know that from Genesis 1.30, that before Adam and Eve's disobedience in the fall of man, all animals and humans ate only plants and flowers. And then after the fall, but before the flood, some animals almost certainly began to eat meat. Although mankind was still commanded to abstain from eating flesh, although some surely disobeyed. Uh, this isn't explicit in scripture, but between the fossil record and inference from biblical text, it's pretty, pretty reasonable to think that after the fall, some animals started eating meat. Like that. Look at the bones. And we know that Genesis, uh, from Genesis 9-3 that after the flood, humans were permitted to eat meat as well, later with specific exceptions in Leviticus, at least for the Israelites, and later without exceptions in Acts, and that's a rabbit too. <laughs> Delicious. All right, switching subjects. So what do you think of when you hear ancient humans? I mean, really, like, picture it. Are you picturing a typical National Geographic caveman with broad features and stone tools? Loves Geico. Let's compare that image to the one in Scripture. From Genesis 2 through 4, we know that pre-flood man developed agriculture and animal husbandry very early on. We know that from Cain and Abel, followed by construction and city planning, Cain and the city of Enoch, and eventually music and arts, Jubal, and bronze and ironworking, Tubal Cain. Maybe some millennia-old examples of ancient technology might help us broaden our view beside, beyond the dull, simplistic depictions of human ancestors as kind of been force-fed Western society for decades. This stuff is cool. Greek fire. Has anybody heard of Greek fire? Nice, nice. So Greek fire is super cool. You probably thought that flamethrowers and napalm were 20th century inventions, right? But they weren't. Uh, Greek fire was developed in the 7th century AD, closely guarded secret, and it, used, it was used primarily by the Byzantine Empire. So basically, what were ancient flamethrowers could be mounted on ships because Greek fire burned on the water. And this little guy right here is holding something called a chirosiphon, which was 
an ancient flamethrower. That's super cool. Has anybody heard of the Baalbek Trilithon? Good, this is my favorite one. I'm glad you haven't heard of it. So in Baalbek, Lebanon, which I do not recommend going to today at this particular point, but there are three enormous stones called a Trilithon, which honestly just means three stones, uh, that form the base of the ruins of the Temple of Jupiter. So for scale, these guys right here, that's people. So these are big stones, right? These, these stones weigh around 870 tons, although they were dressed after they were placed, so transport weight would have been more, and the quarry from which they were transported is almost a mile away. So notice, too, that they, they weren't only transported to the temple. They were also lifted up onto the bottom of that layer of not quite as huge, but also really, really huge stones. Uh, in 1860, a Scotsman who saw the trilithon at Baalbek wrote that the stones were, quote, so enormous as to shut out every other thought and yet to fill the mind only with trouble. So why was his mind filled with trouble? Because nobody knew how stones that size could be moved. But that was way back in 1860. So today, with modern engineering equipment, nobody knows how stones that size could be moved. But the fact is, they were. And then they were lifted up on top of those rocks. That's super cool. Burning glass, also known as a burning lens. So if you have ever used a magnifying glass to burn leaves, or ants, um, you have an idea of what this is about. Uh, anesthesia shout out, Joseph Priestley, who is the discoverer of oxygen and nitrous oxide, both of which are still used on anesthesia machines today, used a burning glass in his work, although smaller than this, and a similar kind of ancient technology. I mean, ancient technology is just a simple parabolic mirror. So these mirrors focus the sun's rays at a single point. They've used, been used throughout history to light fires that were considered clean fires, right? So this picture right here, uh, that's not a historical recreation, it's not from a movie, uh, that's how the Olympic torch is lit, which is virtually identically to how it was done in ancient Greece, where the priestesses of Hera used a version of this called a scaphia. So the coolest story involving these, and the reason I mentioned them at all, they were used in warfare by Archimedes of Syracuse. Uh, the historical record states, when Marcellus, who was a Roman general, had placed the ships of Beauchat off, the old man, Archimedes, constructed a sort of hexagonal mirror he placed at proper distances from the mirror other smaller mirrors of the same kind, which were moved by means of their hinges and certain plates of metal. He placed it amid the rays of the sun at noon, both in summer and winter. The rays being reflected by this, a frightful fiery kindling was excited on the ships, and it reduced them to ashes from the distance of a bowshot. Thus the old man baffled Marcellus by means of his inventions. Some modern researchers, including the guys from Mythbusters, working with volunteers holding mirrors, Aren't sure if this could really be accomplished, but my theory is that Archimedes was just way smarter than those people. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that antediluvian technology was these things exactly, right? And I don't believe that they had things like airships or nuclear technology or anything like that. But let's not imagine that they were just smashing rocks together either. Twilight. From parabolic mirrors to paranormal romance. Bonus trivia question, does anyone know what the term is for animals that are only active at twilight? No, nocturnal's night too, not night. If you know it, you get all the points. Crepuscular, someone actually knew it last time. I just learned that word this week, it's a good word. Crepuscular, anyway, paranormal romance. Right? Wherein a normal human girl, sometimes guy, meets and falls in love with a mysterious and beautiful member of the opposite sex who's also a vampire, werewolf, fairy, merman, or angel. 
The genre is so popular that it has its very own section of the bookstore, which obviously is in the fiction section, except Genesis 6, 1 and 2 and 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So now, okay, Vizzini, whatever. Inconceivable. Right, inconceivable. Okay, sure. There are alternate views on these verses. The Sethite view, the kingly view. But I will quote here from Tim Chafee, who is with Answers in Genesis. You may be familiar with that organization. It does not take a position on this topic. Um, but he wrote his thesis on these verses, and he does. And he says, the fallen angel view makes the best sense of the text of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It's supported by the immediate context, as well as Job 38, 7, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude. The earliest Jewish and Christian commentators also held this view. It doesn't make arbitrary distinctions for particular terms in this passage, and it can account for the grave consequences of the flood. There is lots and lots more to this subject. If you are interested in it, that is his thesis. You can buy it. It's extremely good, but not that long. Um, it sort of presents the biblical support and arguments for every view, but it's extremely interesting. I think so. Uh, but the, now the best verse of those listed, though, I think, is Job 38, 7 in particular, um, because it uses the same Hebrew term, bene Elohim, for sons of God there. Uh, it's used in both passages, and in Job it unequivocally refers to heavenly beings, because it was before God had created actual people. Anyway, that's what you can get if you're interested in reading more. We can't talk about the Bene Elohim without talking about giants. So... Hey, Hagrid. The Nephilim. From Aramaic, Nafil, meaning giant. Genesis 6 calls the Nephilim heroes of old, men of renown. It's so my fault being the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. Right? And the Bible says they were. It says that they were on the earth in those days before the flood and also afterwards. On the earth afterwards. Wait, so did they survive the flood, you might be asking? That can't be. They can't have survived the flood. But if they didn't survive the flood, then how exactly were they on the earth after the flood? Right? Fair question. So here's another. When in history has seeing the adverse consequences of a specific sin in the lives of others, either other groups or individuals, ever actually resulted in free-willed creatures refraining from sinning in that way forever after? Clearly, the answer is never. That is the history of Israelites. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. So you're saying that after the flood, different angels did the same thing again? Yes, almost certainly they just did the same thing again. Not something to be dogmatic about, but that is what makes the most sense from the text. Can't talk about giants without talking about David. Because if I talk about David, I can talk about Goliath. The history of the Israelites is actually intersected by all sorts of giants. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, the part of Moses' kind of our story thus far, recap of the Israelites' post-Egypt activities, we read about the Anakim, the Enim, the Zamzumim, all great, numerous, and tall. And Og, king of Bashan, with an iron bed almost 14 feet long. In Numbers 13, the story that pretty much all of you will be familiar with, the Israelites spy out the land of Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, and report that all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, 
the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So what do Joshua and Caleb say in response to that report? No, those guys are totally exaggerating. They weren't really that big. So that's actually not what they say at all. They don't, they don't argue with the facts of that report. They don't deny that at all. Uh, he just says, well, so what? We can totally take them. Um, he never denies the facts of the report because they were, in fact, giants. So later the Anakim appear again in the famous figure of Goliath of Gath, who David slays. And I do think David was more that guy and less Veggie Tales. I'll tell you why. Because a lot of you guys are picking, picturing Veggie Tales, right? Um, you are. Goliath was a literal giant and a lifetime warrior who's armed with more weapons than he can actually carry. But because David has faith in God, yes, and also because David kills lions and bears in hand-to-hand combat, he wins. Of course, like in short order, one shot, and then he decapitates Goliath with his own giant sword, which you know. What you may not know is that later in 1 Samuel 21, when David is on the run from Saul and weaponless, uh, he asks a priest named Ahimelech, do you have any weapons here? And Ahimelech says, yes, I actually do. I have the sword of Goliath. And David says, I want that for my personal weapon. So this is not a small little guy. This is a stone-cold killer who is actually friends with other stone-cold killers who have a whole uh, chapter in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 20, which gives further accounts of giant fighting between the Philistines and David's warriors. In fact, the chapter title in the New American Standard is called War with the Philistine Giants, which is so cool. Genealogies. Right, back to the pre-flood world. Nothing is more boring than other people's genealogies, am I right? Even if the people in them live past 900. When 900 years old, you reach, look as good you or not. Hmm? <laughs> right, so boring genealogies. But your own family tree, though, is kind of interesting. For example, for most of my life, I couldn't tell you the names of my paternal ancestors past my dad's dad. But a couple years ago, I discovered that some relations of mine had tracked the Huffman-Hoffman line back to the 1400s when we were gold mine owning minor nobility in Bohemia, which we are not anymore. My dad and I aren't even the first father-son physicians in our family, which would be Wilhelm Ludwig and Paulus Hoffman in the 1600s. So the point is, the Bible is full of genealogies. This is full of them, Old Testament, New Testament. And chances are near 100% that your own bloodline has exactly zero connection to any of them. Except this one. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, you can directly trace your ancestry back there. And then back on down to Adam. Uh, So this right here is the root of your own family tree which I think is pretty cool. So Noah lived 600 years in the antediluvian world and 350 after, long enough to see his descendants, the entirety of the human race, dispersed after Babel. Uh, his father Lamech's, this is no application at all, I just think it's super interesting. His father Lamech's lifespan actually overlapped Adam and his son Shem's overlapped both Abraham and Isaac. So we'll talk about a multi-generational family. Um, it's the most interesting genealogy in the Bible besides ones with Jesus. Okay, yeah, humans will pass on. You keep using that word. And do not think it means what you think it means. In Genesis 6.3, God declares that man's days shall thenceforth be 120 years. I skipped that verse, but I'm coming back to it. Although there's debate as to what exactly the 120 years refers, 
In fact, 120 is the exact number that medical schools, which are very secular institutions, uh, teaches a maximum lifespan achievable by the human body. So we saw from that previous genealogy that indeed, human lifespan did drop precipitously post-flood until the 120-year cap is finally reached around the time of Moses. So see, it all ties back to Wayne's, uh, Wayne's series. So no, it wasn't reached immediately upon God's pronouncement, though. That's true. It didn't immediately drop off at the time of Noah to 120 years. But I will ask you this. Since when is immediate fulfillment a criterion for the legitimacy of prophecy? It's not. It never is. Sometimes it takes thousands of years for a prophecy to be fulfilled. But the fact is, the maximum lifespan of the human being is 120 years. And that's in Genesis, which is why it didn't surprise me when I heard in med school. Coming to the end. The end of all flesh. So, speaking of, you're going to have to answer this for yourself. But I suspect that the prevalent notion among most Christians regarding the depravity of the antediluvian world immediate pre-flood, and this is probably a function of having to make Noah's Ark an age-appropriate Sunday school story, which it's honestly kind of not, is that everyone made fun of Noah because he was building a silly boat. And they were probably pretty rude in general and kind of mean. So God destroyed every living thing in a global cataclysmic event of righteous judgment that wiped the entire earth clean except for the people and things in the Ark. So I think that the church has sanitized the evilness of the pre-flood world, and I think that that does a disservice to the text. And it also, and I've seen this in real life, in real time, gives ammunition to people who want to attack God as mean or unjust because all they were doing was making fun of Noah. Why did he kill them all? So I think we can't imagine how depraved and wicked the world was. I think that if we could, we wouldn't want to. So, Vicini, have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Morons, right? For every single person alive immediately before the flood, it ought to be instead of that, Stalin, Attila, the Hun, Scourge of God, Hitler, saints and Boy Scouts. All right, so here's a mental exercise. Picture the worst, most evil society in history. Nazis, cannibals, baby sacrificing Aztecs. Caligula's Rome, lighting people on fire for big party torches, stuff like that. You know what? Just add them all together into one awful society. And now... Let them become progressively more evil over a few hundred years because every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. And maybe now you have some idea of how it was before the flood and why the only thing that a righteous, just God could do is destroy that world. And speaking of evil, two competing human origin stories have shaped the Western world for the last 150 years. One is the Bible. Yay, that one which begins with Genesis, which teaches that every member of the human race is made in the Im image of God and descended from Adam and Noah, and we are all equally members of the human race, period, full stop. So racism is an absolutely absurd notion. The other, boo, is Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. Did anyone know that that's not the full title of Darwin's book? It's not just the origin of species. It's actually on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Struggle like Kampf in German, as in Mein Kampf, right? Darwin actually went so far as to stratify humans into five tiers of evolutionary progress. Whites on top, aborigines on bottom. 
And the materialism of Darwin's acolytes left no room for God as creator, but because it left no room for God as creator, it also left no room for God as a supreme author of an objective morality. So it is no wonder that the worldview Darwin birthed became the basis of 20th century Nazism, communism, and eugenics programs that have resulted in the death of hundreds of millions of people. And if you, fellow Christian, have incorporated aspects of Darwin's principles into your own understanding of the Christian faith, I would encourage you to realize that they are mutually incompatible worldviews with diametrically opposed axioms in simple terms. They do not fit together. They were not meant to fit together. So now we're coming to the end, though, because everyone's bad. So if everyone's bad, we need an ark. So there's the ark. Wooden vessel with the dimensions stated in Genesis could quite easily have been constructed by eight highly motivated, and they would have been highly motivated, people with centuries of skill sets among them in a matter of years, right? I don't know if y'all have seen the Danish guy, Danish carpenter, who has a project, has built now two, not full size, but also still really, really huge arcs, as his pastime. So it's very, very doable. As far as fitting all the animals onto the ark, which is something you may hear if you talk about it with people who do not believe such things. How could, how could you fit all the animals in the ark? Let's go back to the concept of a Hebrew baramin, biblical kinds. So the pairs of animals on the ark wouldn't have been two tigers, two lions, two cheetahs, two jaguars, two leopards, right? No, it would have been two members of the big cat kind that then dispersed about the earth and through the very scientific, observable phenomenon of adaptive deviation that has nothing to do with any Darwinian evolutionary proposal at all, eventually became the variations of the Panthera family we know today. So also Noah would have likely taken juveniles of every, every kind of animal on the ark, both for size and feeding concerns, as well as to maximize reproductive lifespan. So dinosaurs on the ark? Yeah, no, no problem, honestly. So that's modern Mount Ararat. Will Noah's ark ever be found? So obviously that discovery would be of tremendous significance in many dubious or unsubstantiated claims have been made about it, but consider this. When Noah and his family exited the ark, the flood had just destroyed the entire world, which means that there were no forests for timber, so no wood for building anything, except the wood on the enormous wooden boat that's now perched on top of a mountain and probably isn't gonna be very useful anymore, right? So I lean towards the likelihood that Noah, understanding that the ark had served its purpose and having immediately, immediate concerns like, how can we build shelters so that we can survive to repopulate the earth? Uh, would have probably dismantled it for wood. I can't prove it. It would be awesome if the ark was actually found one day. If it never is, that's the reason why, and I came up with it. <laughs> so back to John. John 5, 46, 47. Words of Jesus. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, and I, I, I want to come back to this because some of you may be saying, yeah, okay, I do believe Moses, like Exodus, Wayne's teaching it, but not this stuff, right? Best case scenario, this is Bible trivia, and we need to focus on saving doctrine, and this is not. So worst case scenario, though, this sounds crazy, and I don't want to sound crazy because if I say that I even might believe in things like half angel giants and that man lived with dinosaurs, how will non-believers take me seriously when I tell them about Jesus? You mean when you tell them that the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient creator of the material space-time universe supernaturally impregnated a virgin human with his son, who is also himself because of the easy-to-explain person of the Trinity, and that baby whose birth was announced with celestial events, and a literal angelic choir grew up to perform miracles that defied physics and human physiology, then died on a Roman cross and bodily rose from a sealed tomb, 
in a way that fulfilled dozens of prophecies made hundreds of years before, also that if you personally confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved from an eternal torment and a lake of fire and live eternally in a new perfect body in an enormous golden jasper city cube of paradise where there isn't any night because God lives there too and illuminates the entire place. So, so my point is, and I think you take it, that it is all foolishness to them from front to back Right, But here's the more important point, is that it is all also true. And it's also imminently defensible as such. And the credibility of the saving truth about Jesus Christ depends on the trustworthiness of infallible, God-given scripture. All of it. So 1 Corinthians 4.1 calls us the stewards of the mysteries of God. So own it. You're the stewards of the mysteries of God. And if you haven't confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead... Consider it. Assurance of eternal life in paradise really is that simple, and because your creator loves you, it is already paid for. That's a pretty good deal. Final thought. Maybe you've been following presidential politics, and maybe you're currently feeling like the humans in Alien versus Predator. Whoever wins, we lose. Perhaps you've seen turmoil abroad and are wondering how God could count in such evil existing in the world. Much of it perpetrated against Christians. Perhaps you're frustrated and disgusted at society's rejection of biblical morality to such an extent that even basic facts of human biology are under attack. And perhaps you don't have any energy to deal with any of that because you're in the midst of problems at home, at work, with your health, or with any of the countless other problems that come with living in a cursed and fallen world. I will encourage you and myself to remember this, that Noah made it through worse things than anything happening today, and he did it by remaining obedient and faithful to God no matter what. And in doing so, he delivered both himself and his family. So, closing words, abhor evil, cling to what is good, have faith that God will make everything right in the end because he is actually going to. Last line. What's the doctor doing about thinking all this stuff anyway? Well, I wrote a book about it, which isn't called Leviathan, it used to be called Antediluvian, but my publisher thought Antediluvian was too big of a word, so he made a much smaller, easy to... Anyway, so I wrote a post-call because I can't take naps. Some of you may have an earlier version called Antediluvian, which I much appreciate, but since then, it's been picked up by that publisher and re-released with a new title. Um, actually, more than a new title, and they'll be out back. Hardcover, softcover, it's got illustrations, genealogies, bestiary, which just means pictures of animals in the back. And an excerpt from book two of the f series, which I need to write because I'm contractually obligated to do it. Um, so I'll be in the foyer after the service if you want to pick up a hardcover or paperback, or just talk about the stuff which I clearly like doing. So thanks a ton, Jeremy. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you all very much.